But thank you again to our band, and uh, thank you all for being with us in worship today. Whether you're here in person or online, we appreciate you being with us. Uh, today we're starting a brand new series that we are calling Enemy of the Empire. About 2,000 years ago, give or take, in Jerusalem, early spring on a Friday morning, some members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, they requested an audience with the Roman governor, a man named Pontius Pilate. And they brought before Pontius Pilate a man named Jesus of Nazareth. And they accused this Jesus of Nazareth of being an enemy of the Roman Empire and a threat to Roman authority. As we make our way through this series, Enemy of the Empire, we will ask the question, was this Jesus truly an enemy of the Roman Empire? Or was he an enemy of an entirely different empire? Was Jesus a threat to an entirely different authority. Now, most of our series that we go through here uh, will be focused on the events of what many Christians refer to as Holy Week. And so Holy Week's that Sunday to Sunday period leading up to Easter starts with uh, Palm Sunday. You guys know about Palm Sunday? You know, it's that Sunday before Easter. So that Sunday to Sunday period, we're going to focus on events in that time. But before we get there, we got to cover some background. we got to cover some history. And so this message is a prelude. This is a lot of exposition before we get to the meat of our series. <laughs> we'll get there. Don't worry. <laughs> um, way back in 2016, if you can remember, uh, that year, uh, there was a documentary that came out called Investing the Historical Jesus. And uh, this is one of uh, many specials that have been made over the years, documentaries, series, that really ask the question, is there a difference between the historical Jesus and our modern-day religious concept of Jesus? Is there a difference between the Jesus we read about in history that's been documented in history and the modern spiritual version of Jesus? And I think that's a question that's that's worth exploring. Is there a difference between the history we have and the Jesus that we Christians believe in? I'm a Christian person. I've spent a lot of time around Christian people, and I've heard um, over the years many Christians say things about Jesus. Well, here's something Jesus said, or here's something Jesus did, but when I look back to the records, the historical records, I don't see Jesus doing that, or I don't see Jesus saying that. And so I think it's worth asking the question, is there some kind of a difference between the Jesus that, that we believe in, that we understand to be real, and the Jesus that's been recorded in history? It's worth exploring. A good question to ask. Uh, as you are aware, there are a number of different opinions and beliefs that people have about Jesus. Uh, some people, uh, they don't believe that there was such a person. Uh, they believe that the stories that we have about Jesus are just legend, it's just folklore, um, it's not verifiable, and so that's one belief that people have about Jesus. Uh, some people believe that Jesus was a good man and a good teacher with some good ideas, but nothing more than that. Then there are other people that believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Son of the living God. And that he came into this world to die on the cross for our sins. And so you can see there are different opinions and beliefs that people have about Jesus. Those are three big ones. And so uh, regardless of, of what your beliefs are right now, what we're focused on today and what we're going to be focused on throughout this series is taking a closer look at the historical Jesus. Um, for our purposes throughout this series, we are going to rely on four books 
as our source material for this journey that we take into the life of Jesus. Uh, There are four biographies that exist about the life of Jesus. Uh, Here's something you need to know about these four biographies. None of them, none of them contain everything, all the details about the life of Jesus. In fact, none of the four writers of these biographies cover the time period between Jesus was 12 and 30 years old, okay? And so if there ever was a historical record of what Jesus was up to during those years, it hasn't survived, so we don't have that. We don't have that, but we do have a whole lot of information from these four biographies about the ministry and the work of Jesus from age 30 into the point of the crucifixion and resurrection. So these four biographies, uh, one of them was written by a man named Matthew. Matthew was one of the original 12 disciples, one of the followers of Jesus. He was a Jewish man. He had been a tax collector. He was hated because he had betrayed his own people to work for the Roman government, and yet Jesus called him to become one of his followers. And so Matthew wrote one of those biographies. Uh, Mark, also known as John Mark. He wrote another one of these biographies. Uh, Mark was not one of the original 12 disciples. He became a follower later on. In fact, there's this event that we're going to talk about in a few weeks, the Last Supper, the last time that Jesus eats a meal with his disciples, the last time he celebrates the Passover feast with his disciples. And they may have had that meal at John Mark's house or at John Mark's dad's house. So Mark, not one of the original 12, but a follower later on. And Mark was good buddies with Peter. Uh, the disciple Peter. He was one of the original three disciples of Jesus. And so a lot of what Mark tells us about the life of Jesus, some of it's from his eyewitness experiences, and some of it is from Peter's account of what happened. Then we have a guy named Luke. Luke is unique because he's the only man who's not Jewish who writes one of these gospels. Luke was a Gentile. Luke was a doctor. And Luke essentially, to some degree, took on kind of the role of a historian in the early church. And he saw that other people were writing these biographies of Jesus, and he said, you know what, I'm going to write one too. So he wrote his, his biography of the life of Jesus. He also wrote uh, the book of Acts that's included in your Bible, and that's a history of the early church. And so that's Luke's deal. Luke was part of the first church and was a missionary in that first church. And then we have John. John also writes one of these biographies of the life of Jesus. Now, John was one of the first three, if not the very first ever, disciple of Jesus. In fact, John was one of a a few group of people, a small group of people, who was actually waiting for the Messiah, the prophesied Messiah, to enter into this world. John, the disciple, had been a disciple of John the Baptist. Okay, there's a lot of Johns, and there's a lot of Marys too. We'll talk about that in the Bible. But John the disciple, he had been a disciple of John the Baptist. They were waiting for the Messiah to arrive. And when Jesus appears on the scene, John the Baptist says to John the disciple, hey, that guy we've been waiting for, the Messiah, there he is. And so John the disciple of John the Baptist becomes John the disciple of Jesus, right? Does that make sense? Everybody follow? A lot of Johns. John's gospel is unique because he was there from the very beginning and he's the only, only disciple that was there at the foot of the cross when Christ was crucified. John is also the disciple that lived the longest. Now all this background information you might find, well this is fantastically boring, why are we talking about this, right? But it's important, I want you to know what information we are using for our source material for this series as we go forward. These aren't stories that are just being made up. Um, Way back in the day, um, I used to be a children's pastor before I was demoted to this role. And um, during children's church one time, I'm telling all these stories about Jesus. And this kid raises his hand in the back. 
Um, and he was one of those like troublemaker kids, which I always love. He raised his hand in the back and says, why should we believe any of the stuff that you're saying? I'm like, that's an excellent question, my friend, because it's been recorded here in history. And so that's my point in giving all this exposition, all this background information. I just want to let you know that what I'm telling you, the stories that I'm telling you, aren't just stories that are made up. It comes from these four sources. The biography is written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, before we get into the events of Holy Week, or what some Christians call Passion Week, there is an event that we need to talk about, a big event that takes place before Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the last time. And so we've got to cover some ground, we'll get up to that event, and then we can get into the meat of Holy Week starting next week, okay? And so Jesus arrives, and Luke tells us that at age 30, he begins his work as a rabbi, and so a rabbi is a traveling teacher. They go from place to place teaching people about God. He would visit different synagogues, different buildings where worship was held along the way, teaching people. So he'd teach in the synagogues, he'd teach in the public square, he teaches on hillsides sometimes. Wherever anybody would listen to him, he would give a teaching. So that's Jesus, enters into his public ministry at age 30. He attracts some disciples, as we said. He calls disciples to follow him, some specific, we got it, specific people to follow him along the way. And so he's got a group, becomes 12 disciples, right? But apart from those 12 disciples, you have a whole bunch of followers other than those 12 that start following Jesus wherever he goes to hear his teachings. And so this Jesus, he's, he's giving these teachings, he's teaching people things about God, but he's also performing these signs and wonders and miracles, Right? And so there's some talk that starts happening about this Jesus. Is this Jesus more than just a prophet? Is he more than just a teacher? Could this be? Do you think perhaps is this the Messiah that we've been waiting for? The Savior? The hero? I know we've got our Old Testament prophets. They've told us that there's this Messiah coming. Do you think it's him? Do you think it's Jesus? And so there's a tension that develops between Jesus and the religious establishment of that day, okay? And so you had Pharisees, you had Sadducees, you had high priests, you had scribes, and the priests, they ran the worship, and the scribes, they kept record of the law and made copies of the law, and they were experts in the law of the Jewish people, and you had the Sadducees and the Pharisees that made up the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, and they had a lot of questions about Jesus and a lot of questions for Jesus because Jesus was not behaving the way that they wanted him to, Right? I thought, well, if this guy, if he's, if he's supposed to be the Messiah, then he ought to come to us and prove it. Prove it. Let us question him. Let us test him. Let us see what he's all about. But Jesus really, that wasn't his motivation. That wasn't, that wasn't a priority. You know, he spent his time with the people, not trying to prove himself to the religious establishment. He spent his time with, with, with sinners, as they're referred to in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He spent his time with them. And so he's performing these miracles, and all along they're trying to figure out, so the Sanhedrin, they're left with this dilemma, the religious establishment, they're left with this dilemma, what are we going to do about Jesus? That's the dilemma. What are we going to do about Jesus? Because as he continues on with his teachings, and as he continues traveling, he's attracting more and more followers, and we're not sure whether this guy is the real deer, or if he's a blasphemer, a false prophet. What are we going to do about Jesus? There was genuine concern there. Is He leading everyone astray? Is He telling lies about God? What are we going to do about Jesus? And so, they came up with some different approaches to handle this, this Jesus issue, this Jesus dilemma. What are we going to do with Jesus? And one of the things they tried to do was to trap Him. 
Let's ask him some questions, all right? He's not coming to us. Let's go to where he is and question him. If we can get him to publicly deny the authority of the law of Moses, then we got him. Then we can shut him down and silence him and end his ministry, right? And so they tried to do that, and it never worked, right? They tried to trap him. They tried to question him. On one occasion, uh, they bring before Jesus a woman who was caught in the act of adultery, and they say, hey, Jesus, uh, the law of Moses says we're supposed to stone to death someone like this, someone caught in this act. What do you say? And they thought, oh, we got him this time. We got him. And Jesus says, okay, whoever's sinless among you can throw the first stone. Like, oh, you got to be kidding me. How did he slip out of that one, right? And so they tried to question him. They tried to discredit him, right? And so he performed these miracles, and they said, ah, it's not a real miracle. I mean, he's just powered by Satan. That's what it is. It's some kind of dark magic. It's Satan that's giving him the ability to do these miracles. And Jesus said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I'm doing miracles by the power of Satan, then, then who are your people performing miracles by? What, what gives them power? Like, oh, man. And so they could not trap him. They could not discredit him. And so they're left with this dilemma. What are we going to do about Jesus? You see, these members of the Sanhedrin, these members of the Jewish religious establishment, they cared about their community. And at this time in history, Jerusalem and the Jews, they were being occupied by Rome. They were under Roman authority. And there was a very very fragile peace that existed between Rome and the Jews. A very fragile peace that was on the verge of collapse at any moment. And those members of the religious establishment, those members of the Sanhedrin and the priests and the scribes, they had made their fair share of compromises just to play nice with Rome. Rome said, okay, you can have your temple and you can have your little Sanhedrin thing but you got to let us tell you who's allowed to be a priest and who's not. And if you want to do your worship, you got to come to us to get the high priest's robes before you can go into the holiest of holies. And so they had made their fair share of compromises with Rome just to, just to maintain the peace. Because here's what the leaders knew, what the religious leaders knew. They couldn't beat Rome. It's the Roman Empire. We can't overthrow them. We can't defeat them. we got to play nice with them. we got to maintain the peace. And Jesus and His ministry was a threat to that fragile peace that existed. And then we have this event in the life of Jesus. A miracle so big, so bold. A miracle that could not be ignored. Now, this takes place maybe weeks, maybe a few months before we pick up with the events of Holy Week. But this sets the stage for just how tense things were at this time. If you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open up to John chapter 11. Kelly read a few verses from that chapter for us. We're going to take a look at at some more of this chapter and see how this event unfolds. John chapter 11, um, I'm still getting used to saying that there are Bibles in your pews, right? We've got pews now and Bibles there. So there's Bibles in the pews, there's a Bible on your phone. So if you want to read along with us, I invite you to do that. John chapter 11, verse 1, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. 
This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the, on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. That's a really nice note from John because John knows, hey, there's a lot of Marys. Let me clarify which Mary we're talking about here. I'm like, oh, thanks, John. I appreciate that. So the sisters, Mary and Martha, so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Isn't that wild to think about? I mean, we know Jesus had disciples and we know he had followers, but he just, he had friends, right? I mean, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, this trio of siblings, they were like his companions, his friends. And and we don't know a whole lot about Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It seems like they all live together or, or at least very close to each other. We don't know if any of them were married. We don't know about their parents. We don't know what age they were. It seems like they had a degree of wealth for people in that time and they were able to host Jesus and his disciples and feed them all and that kind of thing. And they were friends. They were supporters. They may have even been, and again, we don't have history to prove this, but they may have even been financial supporters of the ministry of Jesus. He wasn't making any money. He was a missionary, right? He relied on support from other people. So he's got this friend, his friend Lazarus, that he loves. And word makes it to him that he's sick. Now at this point, Jesus is on the east bank of the Jordan River based on what we know from earlier in John's Gospel. So he's about a day away, a day's journey away from Bethany, okay? Because he had to walk everywhere. There was no Uber or anything. So it's about a day's journey away and he gets this news. Verse 4, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, if if you're there, right, and if you hear Jesus say this, especially if you're one of his disciples, you know, you're John, you're standing right there, you hear Jesus say, okay, this is going to, God's going to be glorified through this sickness. You're thinking, okay, we're making our way to Bethany now, right, Jesus? That's not what happens. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, Mary, and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, what did he do? Well, he stayed where he was for two more days. Wait, what? He stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Bethany was in Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back. Uh, Jesus, do you remember the last time we were there? We didn't exactly get a warm reception. We had to kind of slip out of there. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in daytime will not stumble, for they will see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. This is not the first time Jesus has spoken in these terms, light and darkness. Jesus is here to bring light, right? Clarity, illumination. People are walking in darkness, walking in confusion. He says, listen, they may be trying to kill us there, but we need to bring some light into this situation. And after he'd said this, now he's going on to be more specific here. After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. Now, we'll discover that what Jesus means is Lazarus is dead, right? He was speaking figuratively, right? The disciples don't get that. And I love that John includes this, okay, because this is real. His disciples reply, well, Lord, if he sleeps, he's going to get better, so don't wake him up, right? If he sleeps, he'll get better. But Jesus had been speaking of his death. The disciples thought this meant natural sleep, so he told them plainly, all right, enough of the figurative stuff. Let me tell you, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, who I love, by the way, one of the disciples, then Thomas, also known as Didymus, which means twin, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go 
so that we may die with him. Wow, Thomas. Thomas knows, okay, last time we were, you know, in Judea, they tried to kill us, and now you're saying we got to go back there because you got to go see Lazarus. Like, Thomas is like, all right, I'm in. Let's go. They're going to kill us. Let's go die too. Ooh, Thomas. Good for you, Thomas. Let's continue on. Verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. Okay, and so you're right there at Jerusalem, not far away, less than two miles. Thank you for that information, John. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. There was a crowd that had gathered. Uh, Lazarus was a public figure of, of some type. He may have held some sort of local political office. We don't know for sure, but he was known, and a lot of people came out to show support for this family. They weren't far away from the hub of Jewish activity from Jerusalem, so a lot of people were there. It's important to note. When Martha heard that Jesus, verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Ah, those heartbreaking words. You have to be careful when you're reading tone into these words. But what's there? Heartbreak maybe disappointment, maybe frustration. Like, Jesus, we know, we believe, if you had been here, he would not have died. Verse 22, but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Seeds of hope. Frustration, disappointment, belief, hope. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Verse 24, Martha answered, oh, I know he will rise again in the resurrection and at the last day. You see, that's a subject that we can talk about in great depth some other time, this, this resurrection that the Jews were expecting and is a reality that they were going to be raised up on the last day. And, and Jesus, you know, he says this, he makes this comment about Lazarus rising again and, and, you know, here is his sister and she just assumes, well, you mean on the last day, that's the kind of resurrection you're talking about, but it's not. Listen to what Jesus says. Verse 25, all right? Martha's already expressed she believes in the resurrection. Here's what Jesus says. Verse 25. I am the resurrection. What? I am the resurrection. Right? It's not, okay, you think about resurrection, is it something that happens as an event, as in a day, something? No, no, no. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into this world. After she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking to see you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but he was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn. Okay, there's chaos happening. There's a group of people in the house. They're with Mary. She runs out. Let's follow her. What's going on? Where is Jesus? He's not here yet. Let's go out and meet him. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was, okay, crowd is forming. She reached the place where Jesus was. She saw him. She fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, same thing. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. 
Where have you laid him? He said. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. All right. Important side note. I just want you to know that this is the God that I worship. All right. The God that weeps with us. You know, some people have this concept of God as being maybe far off. There, there, I see that you're in trouble. There, there, it's going to be okay. Our, our Lord is the one that, that sits down and cries and weeps with us and mourns with us. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Oh, if only he would have been here. We know he did, he's done other miracles. We know he's capable of this. If only he, why wasn't he here? Do you know? I don't know. 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time uh, there is a bad odor, for he's been there for four days. Jesus, this is not a good idea, okay? This is grisly. This is gruesome. It's going to stink. And we don't want to think of our brother like that. Nobody wants to see this. No, no, this is not a good idea. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Apparently, Jesus had lifted up a prayer in silence to Father God. He says, Father, thank you for hearing me. Thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this. He's saying this out loud for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. You know, sometimes Jesus is figurative and, and completely mysterious. He is so blunt here. Father, thank you for hearing me. I'm praying this out loud so that all these people will be able to know that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Verse 44, the dead man came out. What? Now listen, if you grew up, if you did a church thing growing up, and you did the Sunday school thing and all that, maybe you're kind of desensitized to this, but this is, this is huge. A crowd is forming. They don't know what's happening. Why wasn't he here earlier? I don't know. Then all of a sudden, come out. He, the dead man comes out. What is happening? His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. A man has been raised from the dead. Hang on a second. You know, big deal. What would he do? Jesus has done this before. This is the third time he's raised somebody from the dead. Why is this different? Well, those other two occasions, right? They were, you know, the, the people who had died were still there in their deathbed, right? Maybe they were just mostly dead. You guys see the Princess Bride, a miracle max. He's only mostly dead, right? You know, they could have said, well, I don't know, was that person really dead? And there wasn't a big audience like this, those other resurrections. Now you've got a big audience, and this guy was as dead as you can get, right? Dead. Four days. Beyond hope, or so it seemed. Or so it seemed. Raised back to life. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some went to the Pharisees and they tattletailed. I went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. They were left with the same dilemma. <laughs> what are we going to do about Jesus? 
What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is a man performing many signs. They don't call them miracles, they call them signs because they knew there were signs because a sign points to something. And Jesus was performing these signs that point to the fact that he is the Messiah. Here is a man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. If we let him keep performing these signs, everyone's going to believe in him. And then, why is that a bad thing? And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. If we allow this to continue, do you realize there are consequences? If Rome catches wind of this, they will come in, they will shut us down and destroy our nation. Fear. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. You're asking the question, what are we accomplishing? We're asking the question, what are we... Yeah, you guys don't get it. The answer is simple. If we're going to maintain the peace if we are going to protect our people, if we are going to protect our nation, the solution is simple. We have to kill Jesus. We have to. If you read later on in chapter 12, it turns out they also had a plot to kill Lazarus. We have to kill Jesus. Then we have to get rid of the evidence of this miracle. All in the name of preserving the status quo and preserving the peace. It's easy for us to vilify these people. It's easy for us to vilify the Sanhedrin. It's easy for us to vilify these priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Here is God among you, and you're denying the evidence of what you see. You're denying the evidence of what's going on, and you're trying to prevent this from happening. It's easy for us to vilify them, but think of it from their perspective. If all this is real, if Jesus is real, then their whole way of life is gone. There's no more temple. There's no more need for a Sanhedrin. And all these dudes are out of work. They're out of work. They've lost their power. They lose their status. And guess what? People in positions of power are not inclined to give it up. Not giving up my power. Coming unemployed. And so that seems self-centered, but there was also this, this other genuine concern for the community. Yeah, there was some self-centeredness in there. But there's also, what about our people? We have to preserve this nation. If the Romans find out about this, we know what the consequences will be. They will wipe us out. This was a legitimate concern because in 70 AD, Rome does come in and destroy Jerusalem and tear down the temple. Their concerns were legitimate. So they decide they have to kill Jesus. How far they would go just to preserve the peace I don't know. The compromises that we can make. <laughs> the compromises that we can make in an effort to preserve the peace. You consider the history of our nation. You know, we, uh, we look back at the Revolutionary War and those, uh, those revolutionaries, they're our heroes, right? Well, they're, they're our heroes because they won. <laughs> and those British loyalists, they were the bad guys, right? I mean, how can you live like this and taxation without representation? Let's join the fight. Let's join this war. You know, maybe those British loyalists, they were just guys that said, listen, let's just maintain the peace. We can't get a war with England, right? How far would we go? How much would we endure? How much would we tolerate just to preserve the peace in our lives? We don't like change. We don't like that peace to be disturbed. We don't like it. We don't want it. In Matthew's biography, Matthew, 
his biography of Jesus. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 through 36, Jesus says, do not suppose, listen to this, he says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I mean, Jesus let the people know right up front. If you think that's what I'm about, it's not. Don't go thinking I'm here to bring peace. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to this earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And then he specifies what kind of sword, what kind of conflict. Not, not an army against army, not nation against nation. Not, okay, let's get the Israelites together and defeat Rome with swords and we're going to battle. No, not that, not that kind of conflict. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be members of his own household. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace. I have come to disturb the peace. Isn't that the case? I believe, and I know I'm not alone in this, that Jesus is the most controversial figure in all of history. And here's one reason why he's still disturbing the peace. He's still disturbing that peace. Do you know what that's like? You've got that relationship with Jesus and that you love people that don't, and there's that conflict, and what's going to happen? Or maybe you're somebody, maybe you're somebody who doesn't believe, but you've got an aunt or an uncle, you've got Aunt Susie, and she's a believer, and you know you're going to go to Thanksgiving dinner, and Aunt Susie's going to be there. Like, oh, if she could just stop with the Jesus stuff, I don't want to be there. Is she going to be there? All right, I'll go, but she's not allowed to talk to me about Jesus. Do you know what that's like? Or for those of you that are believers, do you know what it's like? It's 4th of July and the family's getting together and you're a believer, but you've got that family member who's not and they like to take task with you and they like to take issue with you and they like to fight with you. You're like, okay, we're going to go, but we've got to preserve the peace. We're not going to talk about Jesus. We're not going to talk about church. Oh, he's still disturbing the peace to this day. He has not come to bring peace, but a sword to this day disturbing our peace. So, My question for you is what are you going to do about Jesus? What are you going to do about Jesus? Are you going to attempt to maintain whatever peace it is you have in your life right now, as fragile as it may be, or will you give Jesus the opportunity to disturb that peace, to disturb your way of life? to upset your value system, to change your priorities. What position will you take on Jesus? Will you try to stay neutral? A lot of people do that. I don't want to think about this Jesus stuff, and I know some people believe in him, and some people don't believe he ever existed, and some people believe he's the Son of God, but I'm not going to deal with any of that. I'm just going to ignore all that and go about my life, and I'm just going to avoid this whole Jesus stuff. Are you going to do that? Is that what you're going to do about Jesus? Because I tell you what, that's what a lot of people do about Jesus. Just gonna to try to avoid dealing with this or thinking about it, and I don't wanna I don't wanna I don't wanna go there. How long is that gonna last? I don't know. You can try to avoid it, you can try to take a neutral position on Jesus, but I don't know how long that's going to last. And that kind of peace, whoo, fragile at best, right? What position will you take on Jesus? Are you prepared, okay? Are you prepared to definitively state, to declare that you don't believe in any of this? You don't believe there was such a Jesus because that's a bold position to take. It's just nonsense. It's folklore. It's fairy tales. None of this is real. At this point in your life, do you have enough information to take that definitive stance? I don't know. Will you try to take a, maybe, a, maybe a softer position because that's awfully harsh. Maybe a softer position on Jesus. A softer stance. I was a good man. 
And he probably did exist and a good teacher, but the Son of God stuff and the salvation stuff, I don't know about that. But like, he's a good dude, right? Try to take a softer stance on Jesus. How far would that get you? I don't know. How about this? Will you attempt to keep an open mind about Jesus? Are you willing to explore the possibility that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be? The Son of God who died on a cross for your sins so that you could receive eternal life. What are you going to do about Jesus? I'll tell you what we are going to do about Jesus as a church. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We are going to keep sharing the stories. We're going to share what we have learned from these biographies. We're going to share with you what we've learned from our experiences with Jesus. And we're not going to tell you what you should believe. And we're not going to tell you what, what position you should take. And we're not going to tell you what you should do about Jesus in your life. That's for you to figure out. But if you're open to hearing more about the history of Jesus, we want to invite you to join us again next Sunday as we continue to tell his story. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done for us. And we thank you uh, for preserving these biographies for us. And, and we give you credit for that, God, for maintaining the integrity of this history all these years later. Jesus, we thank you for, for what you've done for us. And, uh, and God, you know. Jesus, you know how tough it is. <laughs> how tough it is to believe. You know how tough it is for us to be open to, to having our way of life challenged or changed. You know how tough it is for us to be willing to let our peace be disturbed. But I just pray that you would give us the courage to keep seeking answers, to keep seeking truth, to keep seeking after you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.